All right, so um, we are in 1 Corinthians. We started this as week two. We started this last week, plus a little preamble before that. <clears throat> um, so you can go ahead and turn there to chapter one in your Bibles, or if you want to just use my sermon notes, the same thing I've got sitting here. There's some printed out on the back of the room there on the table, and also online there's a link in the description of the video and you can click on it and find the same notes, all right? So however you like to roll during sermon time, it's up to you, right? <clears throat> so we are still on the topic of division in the church in 1 Corinthians, okay? And in some ways, you know, it's the background of the whole book, okay? But it's really focused on by Paul at the beginning of his letter, the first four chapters, okay? So when we get to the end of the chapter 4, it becomes more of a background thing that, come, that affects how we look, see everything. But in these first four chapters, he's fo focusing directly on it, okay? Um, and the issue here doesn't seem to be, we talked about this last week a little bit, doesn't seem to be like a doctrinal argument, at least not at, its, at the surface. Okay, we're not talking about a heretical teaching coming into the church and Paul is trying to get it out. What we're talking about is factions that have grown up that are um, kind of arrogantly attaching themselves to various teachers and maybe by default their unique teachings, but none of these teachers, Paul never rebukes the teachers. He never says, don't listen to Apollos, he's a false teacher. It looks actually like they're all friends. And, and so the problem is not that. So if you go look at Galatians for as a good example, Paul's, it's a different tone. If these false teachers have come into the church, get rid of them, don't listen to them, they're terrible. Here Paul says, we need to come together, and here's how we do it. Okay, so that's kind of the topic at hand. Um, and there's also a growing division between the church in Corinth and Paul himself. And so Paul is trying to deal with that, that Paul planted the church, and now they're not really respecting what he says because he's not coming in a way that they respect. He's not teaching, and he's, you know, he's working a job, making tents. He's not taking a salary. Um, he does, so he's not living in the big house, driving a Bentley and doing, playing that game. And he's also intentionally not coming with a, a, a style of rhetoric that's impressive. Instead, he's coming with demonstrations of the Spirit's power as his bona fide instead of sounding smart and being clever. Okay? All of those things work against him in this scenario, all right? So, so Paul is going to go deeper into this idea of worldly wisdom and cleverness. We talked about the Greek word Sophia versus true spiritual wisdom that comes from God. He's going to compare the two together. He's going to do what all good preachers try to do, which is try to point out how the values of the culture have infiltrated their hearts and clouded their thinking. Because this is the, 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 the value of the culture is if you're clever and witty and talk good, then you should be listened to and we will like you. But if you don't, if you aren't clever and you're just simple, but you tell the truth, we're not going to listen to the truth because you're not being clever, okay? All right, so 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 25 says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness 
to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. If you've never heard the word thwart, that's like frustrate. Right? We, don't, we don't throw the word thwart around. I thwarted you. Right? This means to frustrate. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe or the expert on the law? Where is the debater or philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom or Sophia, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, preaching the gospel, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man or humans or mankind, and the weakness of God is stronger than mankind. So you see the comparing he's doing between God's wisdom and this cleverness that the Greeks and Romans were valuing and that the church in Corinth was valuing man's wisdom, human wisdom, earthly wisdom, natural wisdom, right? He's saying one is good and one is useless, right? He's not making a soft comparison. He's making a very hard contrast between the two. Paul sets up a comparison between those two types of wisdom. The implications of this are startling if you allow it to break through your own value system because I'm convinced that as Americans, we have a very similar value system. When you have a problem in your life, something you don't know, something you don't understand, some problem you can't solve, maybe it's with, in the, your, with your kids, I don't know how to get them to stop you know, biting their fingernails or disobeying me or whining all the time or saying my name over and over and over and over again, whatever it is, or you got a problem at work or a relationship problem, whatever the problem is, what's the first thing you tend to do? You pull out your phone and you Google it. Because you think the problem is your lack of knowledge. And what you really need is more information. And so you Google it. You don't ask an experienced parent who's sitting within like 10 feet of you right now. Hey, what, how did you get your kids to do this or that? Or how, when you have these friendship problems, what did you do? Because you think your problem is a lack of information, a lack of knowledge. And so you have the world's knowledge in your pocket. And so you look to that. And then you get frustrated. Because we believe the same things. We believe we, we're not looking at the gospel as the answer to our problems. Because we've misdiagnosed the problem. The problem isn't your lack of information. The problem is your hard heart. Or the problem is the hard heart of your children. Right? The problem is the hard heart of your neighbor. That you're both human. Like if you ever do marriage counseling with me, I'm going to tell you no two humans are compatible. You thought you were compatible when you got married, and then you discovered you're both human beings. And the problem was not a lack of marriage technique. The problem was your heart was incompatible with, is incompatible with every single other human being on the planet. Not just this one sitting next to you on the bed crying because you've been mean to her. 
It's every human you're incompatible with, right? And so you, when you misdiagnose the problem, you think Google can solve it. And when you realize the problem is your heart and their heart, well, now you have a different solution, right? So let's compare them really quick. Worldly wisdom appears to be deep and pragmatic by the world. It seems like good reason, logical common sense, and a reasonable solution to the problems of society. That's worldly wisdom. So these philosophers were going around talking about how do we fix the world? The world's broken, how do we fix it? I'll propose a solution, and whoever is the most clever in their solution wins. And nothing ever gets solved. Here we are 2,000 plus years later with the same problems they were talking about then. Nothing got fixed. Really smart people tend to agree with worldly wisdom and get really excited about these ideas that can change the world for the better. You think, well, that guy's super smart, and he uses big words, and he likes this idea, so it must be really the answer. Worldly wisdom can be defined as any attempt to answer the questions of identity, purpose, meaning, and mission by anything other than the gospel of Christ. Any other solution is worldly wisdom, and Paul's just not interested. Think about that for a minute. How many times a day do you hear or read worldly wisdom about how to solve these questions, how to answer these questions of who am I or who are we? Identity. Purpose. Why are we here? What are we doing this for? What's life about? What should I be concerned about? What should I be zealous for the most? Where should my passions lie? Meaning. Mission. What do I do every day besides just my job? How do I make, give my life meaning and purpose? What gets me up in the morning? How many times a day do you read the answer to that question? And any answer to that question that is outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ is worldly wisdom. Godly wisdom, by contrast, looks silly to the world. Smart people don't like it. It looks silly because God designed it to look like foolishness to them. we got to get this. It's supposed to be foolish to them. Like if no one's making fun of it, if there's no stand-up comment going, this is ridiculous, Christians are stupid and laughing about it, then we're missing something. It's supposed to be foolishness to the world. I like the word silly because I think folly doesn't quite capture it in English. It's silly to them. I want you to understand the kind of reaction we should expect from people. This is one of the problems I have with how apologetics tends to get presented. Apologetics means like having an answer for your faith. It starts to sound like an attempt to make the gospel not seem like foolishness to the world. And, 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 and really all you end up doing is stripping it of its power, as Paul says. We don't argue people we don't argue for the gospel we proclaim the gospel and there's a big difference so when you're talking to someone who doesn't believe what you believe you need to understand like if you're trying to make the gospel seem not silly to them you're on a fool's errand what you need to think the way you think is how can i declare or proclaim the gospel to them in a way that is accurate and clear and full of godly wisdom but not worldly wisdom. Because it's unless the Holy Spirit opens their mind, we'll talk about that in a minute, and their heart, 
This will seem like foolishness to them, no matter how I say it, or what I'm wearing when I say it, or what kind of science and logic I put behind it. No matter how reasonable I make it sound, it will seem foolishness to them, unless the Holy Spirit opens their mind and heart. Period. And so we declare and proclaim, we don't argue it. So the gospel is self-authenticating. It does not need you to authenticate it with reason. It is self-authenticating. That's Paul's point. I didn't come to you with smart arguments. I just came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And when this Holy Spirit shows up and demonstrates that the gospel is legit, it says it has been authenticated. You don't need to authenticate it yourself. It doesn't need outside proofs, and it cannot be fortified with logic and reason outside of itself. It is simple, beautiful, fully true, and an offense to the so-called wise of the world. And it will always be. Now I should say, qualify that with saying, this doesn't mean that reason and logic are bad things. We've been accused of that a lot. Being dumb is not what Paul's talking Paul's not saying, be, dumb, be a bunch of dummies. <laughs> Don't learn things. <laughs> Don't learn words. Just stand there. All you need is the Holy Ghost. Right? He's, Paul's a very learned person, and he knows a lot of things. It also means it doesn't mean that you have no role to play in your faith. And those, the idea of learning, because Paul's going to talk about having the mind of Christ in just a minute. We're going to see that. Paul's teaching is always full of logic and reason, but what you never see Paul or Jesus do is ground the gospel in anything outside of God himself. He never ceases to understand that it is a miracle that anyone would believe in him. It is always a miracle. And it is always by the Spirit, and it is always grounded in the Spirit and in God himself. All right. <clears throat> so then Paul's going to illustrate this point, okay? 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. He says, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose, he keeps repeating, God chose. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I love this because Paul's first illustration of his point is the people he's talking to that are being arrogant and puffed up about their own spirituality. He says, you guys weren't, you were nothing. You're the foolish thing God chose to confound the wise of the world. Look at yourselves, right? He's like, have you forgotten where you came from? Before you were rescued by the Holy Spirit, you were a bunch of, you were not highborn. You were not wise by the world standard. You were not rich. You were not of the right family in the right station in life. You didn't qualify 
to meet the standard that you're now trying to impose. And he calls them actually foolish. God chose the foolish things to confound the wise. And he's talking about them. I love it. I wonder if they were insulted. They are the foolish thing that God chose to confound the wise. Paul repeats his statement about not coming with wise and persuasive Sophia or wisdom, worldly wisdom, but adds an additional phrase. Chapter 2, verses 2 to 5, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible, I love that word, plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of his spirit, of the spirit and of power, so that your faith may, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He says, I, res- I chose, I resolved not to know anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified. What, in the, what does he mean by that? I mean, Paul obviously knows a lot of things other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's other information in his head. He says it in this way to emphasize how little concern he has for anything outside of Jesus Christ and him crucified. He is so laser-focused on that truth, the gospel, as being the only thing that's going to change and transform anybody or improve anyone or anyone's life or society or any of it. The answer to the questions is the gospel. And he is so laser-focused on that that it is as if he knows nothing else. I can imagine people going, Paul, when are you going to kind of talk about something else? Like, you seem, I've been accused of having one sermon. And you're kind of right. I hope. I hope that's what people, he always just talks about the gospel. He seemed to like not know anything else. Because that's how Paul's coming to these people. He's just repeating this one, going to this one thing, grounding everything in this one thing so much that it's like he knows nothing else. This is hugely important for us. Because we're full of knowledge about a bunch of other stuff that we're constantly trying to lean on as a support for ourselves. But Paul's mind and heart are occupied with little else. Could it be that this is God's strategy for navigating all the division and schism in the church? Could it be that here in 2021, this is still the answer? To be so laser-focused on the gospel as the power of God that it appears at least that we know nothing else and care about nothing else. Could it be that this is how the church can remain unified with so many things that we could divide over, including doctrine? So what I'm calling for this morning is to let your concern for the gospel be so great that it would be as if you know nothing else. Let your passion for the mission of Christ be so great that it just looks like we don't care about anything else. Even if you do. That your passion and zeal and focus on Christ and his mission, Christ and him crucified, would just sort of be all-encompassing. And that your opinions about all the other stuff starts to just seem silly. And those things look like foolishness to you. 
that the things that the world thinks are really important and really wise, that the wise have very strong and clever opinions about, you look at and say, no, that's foolishness. Your vast and intense opinions about politics and vaccines and masks and COVID and America and all of this stuff just starts to seem like, okay, I'm sure someone should worry about that, but I'm focused on the mission of Christ. And I've got some opinions, but they don't compare at all with my heart for Jesus and his mission. I think this is why you don't get a lot of those kinds of things in Scripture. I, mean, I can imagine Peter having some opinions about what Israel should do, what Jerusalem should be doing, and what Rome should not be doing. And I can imagine him sitting around and, I don't know, not eating pork and whatever he ate and complaining about it from time to time. But what you don't see is Peter writing letters to churches rebuking them for not having his opinion. You don't see Paul doing it either. I think this is why. They just didn't have time for it. Because they were so busy focused on Jesus Christ and him crucified. That even from our perspective 2,000 years later, it seems like they didn't know anything else. So up until now, Paul has been contrasting human wisdom with God's wisdom as though they are essentially on a level playing field. But this next section is where godly wisdom sort of leaves human wisdom in the dust because he starts talking about the benefits of godly wisdom. The benefits, like what it does for you and why, like, like what it gives you access to. He says in verse 6 through 9, he says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Let those, let those words hit you upside the head right now. The rulers of this age List them off in your head. I'm not going to do it for you. It would get me in trouble. Just list off all the rulers of this age, the good ones and the bad ones, all over the world. They are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our, of for, for our glory. That's an astounding sentence. Not just for his glory, but for ours. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. The re so the reason that God's wisdom is foolish to the world is that what God has planned for his family is simply too great and too wonderful for them to comprehend. It is beyond imagination what he has planned for you. It is inaccessible to the human imagination. They cannot see it. So when they see it in the gospel, they go, that's insane. That's foolish. That's silly. That's pie in the sky. I guess if you need that to get through the day, if you need that crutch, I just don't need it. No, you just lack imagination. 
cannot be accessed by even the greatest human wisdom. The smartest people on the planet, the planet, the greatest leaders, the greatest minds cannot access what God is going to give you by his wisdom and by his spirit. So how do you get it? Well, he's going to tell you, verse 10, these things that God has revealed to us through the spirit, for the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that he might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges or discerns all things, but is himself to be judged or discerned by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Now, this is a mouthful. So let me help you. First, in verses 10 to 13, he just says, just like no one truly knows the inner thoughts and feelings but you, like you... What you're actually thinking, I don't know unless you tell me. And even then, I don't really know. Only you know the secret thoughts in going through your head. The same is true of God. But who does know the secret thoughts going through God's head? The Holy Spirit. He says the Spirit searches the depths of God. He knows everything that God is thinking because he is one with God. Right? It goes back to our doctrine of the Trinity. What God knows, the Spirit knows. And where is the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian? He's in you. Woohoo! So the one who knows all of God's thoughts and feelings also is in you. And he's willing to, he's happy to let you know what God is thinking. That's pretty cool. That's pretty amazing. Now, the flip side of that is the Holy Spirit also has searched the depths of you. <laughs> you are exposed, fully and totally exposed. So the thoughts and feelings of God himself are in you because his spirit in you is in you. This is what Paul in other places calls, you know, we're unified with Christ. You're just like melded together. You can't be separated, can't be unwound from each other. It's the picture of marriage completed between Christ and you. You're just one. You're unified with Christ. You died with him. When he died, you died. When he raised, you raised. And when he was put seated next to the Father in heaven, you were seated there. You're with him right now, and he's with you. There is no separating the two of you, period. This is why Paul can say you have the mind of Christ. But then in verse 14, he says, he talks about the natural person the natural person is a person who lives entirely or only on a human level, does not have the Holy Spirit. And so if you, are, if you don't have the Spirit, you do not have access to what God knows and what God thinks and what God says. And you don't have access to the blessings that come from that. There is no way to comprehend or access any of God without the Spirit. There's no way to climb over the fence into heaven, as they say. It is impenetrable. It is inaccessible by you completely. 
You can come to meetings. You can sit in the room. You can listen to sermons. You can even pray. And you can do stuff. But if God doesn't open the door, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have access. You must be a Christian to be a Christian. God has to do it. Right? You can enjoy the... Lots of people want to enjoy the benefits of the church without being a Christian. And you ultimately just can't. Verses 15 to 16 are hard to understand if you take them out of their context, as many throughout church history have. The word there for, is ju- for judge or discern is a word that Paul never uses in any of his other writings, which is kind of interesting. He only uses it here. Probably this is a word that the Corinthians were using a lot as kind of like a buzzword or an insider word. And Paul's taking it to kind of use in his argument against them. Basically what he's saying here, and I have a long extended quote here from Gordon Fee, but I just couldn't figure out how to say it better than him, so I'm just going to quote him. He says, The person lacking the Spirit cannot discern what God is doing. The one with the Spirit is able to do so because of the Spirit. Therefore, the one without the Spirit cannot examine or make judgments on the person with the Spirit. It's unassailable, it's ununderstandable by someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. In its first instance, this simply means that the person who belongs to this age is not in a position to judge as foolish the person who belongs to the age to come. It has truly been said that the profane person cannot understand holiness, but the holy person can well understand the depths of evil. The one whose life has been invaded by the Spirit of God has the capacity to discern all things, including those without the Spirit, but the inverse is not possible. And how often do we see people without the Spirit, people in the world trying to stand in judgment over the church? And they can't. They can't even comprehend what we're doing here. That's Paul's point. He's probably also defending himself a little bit here, saying, who are you <laughs> to judge me? That's probably part of where, he, that is where he's going to go next. Okay, so he's setting that up, but the main point is, if you don't have the Spirit, you can't judge someone who does. So through the gospel, we can be unified with Christ by being indwelled by the Spirit, which allows us to live as we are created to live, the purpose of which is to know the mind and heart of God. So think about this for a minute. You have the mind of Christ. And what does the mind of Christ know? He knows everything. I think this is amazing. <clears throat> and that mind, that's in you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've got the mind of Christ there. And all you've got to do is get submitted to it and listen to it. This means a lot. For one, it means that the more mature you get in God, the more submitted to the Spirit you get, the more submitted to the mind of Christ you get, the more we should agree. Think about that. Imagine heaven where we're all kind of finished there, fully like mind-melded with Christ. Will there ever be a disagreement? No. And you won't have to look up some weird study on the internet to agree on it. No emails required. You just will agree. Why? Because you both know perfectly exactly what Jesus thinks. 
And there will be no temptation to disagree with him. We will think what he thinks. We'll believe what he believes. We'll say what he says. We'll confess what he confesses. But we should be growing that way now. I think one application of this might be that if you find yourself in constant contention with your opinions, with the people, with the good Christian believers around you, there's a problem. Somebody's wrong. Somebody's right. I want to be careful when we start talking about unity that we don't start becoming relativistic, like everybody's right. But if there's a mind of Christ and he is, he's the final decider, right? So this means that contention is not just saying, well, we won't talk about that. There's something that we need to be personally zealous for, which is I want to actually have the mind of Christ so be so submitted to him that I find myself in unity, not just because I'm agreeing not to talk about things, but because my heart and my mind are united with him so perfectly that I find myself in agreement with people. Start with marriage. Just start with your marriage. Everything shouldn't be a fight. It's, as you grow together, you should fight and disagree less and less. I'm not saying you never fight, never disagree. Again, like remember last week we talked about we're, after, we're not after homogeny. Everybody thinks the same. Like you have to always think the same way. That's weird. That becomes cultish. That's not what Paul's looking for. However, what, why don't we just take this mind of Christ thing seriously and start asking the question, Jesus, what do, what do you think? Not Google, tell me what the world thinks. But Jesus, what do you think? Help me to understand, and why am I, being, am I being contentious with my wife or my spouse? Are, are we seeking after you after the same things or not? That becomes an important question. So having the mind of Christ is the result of being filled with and walking in the Spirit. Paul is pointing out to us that this means that we do not have to be divided over the things that divide the world. We don't have to be. I think this also applies to the way you approach things like spiritual disciplines, like the Bible. Like I just, when I read the Bible, I just can't understand it. You can. You have the mind of Christ. You can do it. You know the number one reason why people struggle to read the Bible it's because they're not reading the Bible. <laughs> it's the number one reason people struggle to understand the Bible is not reading it. Because once you read it, if you approach it like, okay, I've got the mind of Christ. I've got to figure out how to listen to him. And his mind is on display right here in black and white. And so Holy Spirit, will you help me to understand this? I want my knowledge of you to grow, my understanding of how you speak and the way you authored this book, I want to understand the words. I want to understand how to read it and understand it. But I also need your spirit to wake my brain up so that it can understand it and apply it to my life. I want to hear you talk to me. I need you. I have the mind of Christ. I'm not waiting to get it. I have it. That's what Paul says. We have the mind of Christ. You possess it right now. And a lot of times it's a faith issue because you look at yourself naturally and you go, well, I'm not a reader. I didn't do well in school. And you stack up all these natural reasons 
why you can't understand the Bible, and then you'd never include the one thing that trumps all your reasons why you can't, which is you have the Holy Spirit. You have the mind of Christ. He wrote it. That goes on the other side of the scale, and it drops it every time. Well, I just don't know how to be a good dad because I didn't have a good dad. And I'm really, I got an anger problem and tend to be selfish and oblivious or I'm not very good. I'm emotionally unintelligent. (laughs) Whatever it is. All your reasons why you can't do this. And you don't ever say, include in your list of evidences why not the one biggest reason why yes, which is I have the mind of Christ. It's a huge thing for us to get. So when we're walking in the Spirit, we will be so zealous for the gospel and the kingdom that it will seem as if every other knowledge is nothing by comparison. In addition, the more that, we, that our thinking is in submission to the mind of Christ, we should expect to actually agree on more things. This is Paul's main point. It is the key to unity is walking in the Spirit and recognizing that you have the mind of Christ. This is what I want to pray for. Why don't we stand up? And <clears throat> if you're at home, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> Lord, I just thank you for making it possible for a bunch of incompatible humans to be in unity together. It doesn't require us to lose our personalities, lose ourselves in the process, simply walking by the Spirit, having your mind within us is all we need. So God, we repent, first of all, for having other loves, other values that might compete with that. God, I pray that it would be said of us what Paul said about himself, which is, I resolve to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. God, that every other knowledge, every other value, every other belief would be so subordinate to that one that it would appear as if we just have a singular focus. Lord, would you awaken by your spirit, would you awaken this passion, the same passion Paul had, the same zeal that drove him around the world in, in and out of prison, in and out of poverty, torture, abandonment, all of those things, the thing that drove him through all of it was he had a singular focus. God, I pray for not just Living Hope Church, but your church. That we would get plugged in to your mind. That we would be submitted to your mind. God, I pray for uh, just marriages. God, they're just on my heart this morning. God, for where there's just constant contention over just everything. Like little tiny decisions that ought to be easy or hard. 
would you bring submission to your mind in those marriages? God, and I pray that for all of us and all of our relationships within the church, God, that even between churches, God, that we would all be submitted by the Spirit to the mind of Christ. God, I pray that unity would grow and increase in a time when the world can't figure that out. The world becomes more and more and more divided down to the point of the individual. God, I pray that your church in this nation would grow more and more unified, not around a common worldly wisdom, but around a common spirit, the spirit of Christ. God, this would be the thing that marks us for the next century as a church. This deep, profound, miraculous unity. God, I pray that you bless us with that in this church. And thank you for preserving it so well in the last few years. God, we're so grateful. In the name of Jesus, amen.